please turn in your Bibles to the book of Leviticus, chapter 1. As we are entering uh, the, the Advent season, I've chosen to do an Advent series from the book of Leviticus. That doesn't sound very traditional, does it? John writes in 1 John 4.10, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Uh, That's what the incarnation is all about. That God sent his son, that was an expression of his love, and Jesus came to be the propitiation for our sins and there's no better place to try to understand what it means to be the propitiation for our sins than to see that in the sacrifices that are described in the book of Leviticus so let's read I'm just going to read verses 1 to 9 of chapter 1 and then we'll talk about what this shows us about our Lord Now the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tabernacle of meeting, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of the livestock, of the herd, and of the flock. If his offering is a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own free will, at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord. Then he shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. He shall kill the bull before the Lord, and the priests, Aaron's sons, shall bring the blood and sprinkle the blood all around on the altar that is by the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And he shall skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces, The sons of Aaron, the priests, shall put fire on the altar and lay the wood in order on the fire. Then the priests, Aaron and his sons, shall lay the parts, the head and the fat, in order on the wood that is on the fire upon the altar. But he shall wash its entrails and its legs with water. And the priest shall burn all on the altar as a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. And there we'll end our reading. May God bless his word to us as we consider it together this morning. Well, certainly the the Christmas season, the holiday season is upon us. And I'm always struck by what a strange blend of the secular and the sacred you see around Christmas time. So yes, there's this massive commercialism And almost every store you go into, as they're offering sales and wanting us to to spend a lot of extra money this time of year, they're playing Christmas music. And one minute you're listening to Here Comes Santa Claus, you know, Silver Bells, something like that. And then in in the very same store and the same station or whatever it is, then you're listening to Joy to the World or Heart the Herald Angels Come. And and they're, they're actually saying words that if you listen to them are, are sometimes biblically quite profound and quite uplifting. And so you have this profound biblical truth right alongside these secular traditions. And however your family chooses to celebrate this time of year, it's important to understand 
why Jesus had to come into the world if we were going to be saved. If we were going to be saved, Jesus had to come in the flesh. Because as we read from John, uh, 1 John there, Jesus had to be, and we had to have a propitiation for our sins, someone to take away our sins. And I know, children, that that word propitiation is maybe one you're not familiar with. Well, listen as we go through, because we're going to try to make sure we understand what it means. And what we see as we look at the passage today is that your access to God's favor and blessing comes through the radical sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so this is a call for us to live and to worship God by leaning, leaning on our Savior, Jesus Christ. And children, you might draw a picture that we had described here of this altar and this animal burning on the altar and listen for what that teaches us about Jesus and what he's done for us. Well, there's an outline in the bulletin, and you'll notice the first thing we want to see there is that your natural impulse is to seek God's blessing in worship. And this is one of the strange things about the book of Leviticus is it begins, there's no introduction, there's no sort of easing us into the topic, there's just like immediately we're chopping up animals and setting them on fire, and it seems like a very strange way to start a book. But the reason why it must start here, and in fact the beginning of several chapters are on the sacrifices, is because the sacrifice is so central to what it means to live as God's people. And so we have to understand Leviticus falls in an important context. It's in the middle of the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses. And in the first two books we have God creating the nations, right, creating the world, creating the nations choosing this one family. He's drawing this one family to himself out of the nations. And then in Exodus, he's taking this family and and making them into a nation and drawing them out of their slavery in Egypt and establishing them as a worshiping community, uh, serving him. And he, at the end of the book of Exodus, God moves into the tabernacle. He gives them all the instructions on how they are uh, to build the tabernacle. And then God moves in and the glory cloud is there. And then the book of Leviticus comes and the uh, the book of Leviticus, there's nobody moving anywhere. It's really different than all the other books of the first five. Uh, When we go on to Numbers and Deuteronomy, that's the story of how the people go and move and prepare to take the promised land, how they're gonna live in the promised land. But Leviticus occurs during a one month period And Moses goes in to the tabernacle and God gives the instructions for how they are to seek him, how they are to draw near to him. And commentators call the first seven chapters of Leviticus the manual of offerings. They describe five different offerings and these are offerings for individual worshipers. Uh, Some have noted that this really isn't, even though it's called Leviticus, that sort of is because it's about the priests but it's really designed for the worshipers and and for how a a worshiper would approach uh, the Lord at this time. And so we're gonna look at the first type of sacrifice today and then over the next couple of weeks, we're gonna look at a couple of the other types of sacrifices. One of the things that's important to know is that the reason there's multiple types of sacrifices is because one sacrifice was not adequate to picture for us the work of Christ. 
It's only when we put all of them together that we get a full picture of what Jesus Christ accomplished for us. And I think it's also important to know that the sacrifices that are described here are not the original. It's not that Christ comes in and then tries to model what he's doing on these sacrifices, right? These sacrifices are modeled on Christ. He's the reality. These sacrifices are designed to show us something of this coming reality that the people we're looking forward to and that we've been able to experience by knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. And so right here at the beginning, it says now, uh, the Lord calls to Moses and he says in the second verse, speak to the children of Israel, say to them, when any of you brings an offering to the Lord. And what's really striking here is that he doesn't even address the issue of why someone might bring an offering to the Lord. It's assumed that you already understand why you bring an offering. What, what he's trying to focus on is to tell you how you are to bring that offering. I put a quote in your outline from Matthew Henry. And Matthew Henry writes, it's taken for granted that people would be inclined to bring offerings to the Lord. The very light of nature directs man some way or other to do honor to his maker and pay him homage as his Lord. And so that, that is the natural impulse. And, and you see that actually in the scripture, uh, people bringing offerings to the Lord. And now uh, God is saying how this is to be done. He has taken up residence, residence amongst his people in the tabernacle. How is he going to be approached? What is the proper way to do that? And this really is, is the story in some ways of humanity that human beings uh, have an instinctive sense that they, uh, that they must worship. We're made in God's image, we're made as worshiping beings. But what often happens, what Romans tells us is the inclination of all people is to worship something in the creation instead of to worship the creator. Romans 1.25 who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And, th and that is all of our natural bent, that we want blessing, that we seek that blessing in some way, and we typically do it by seeking it in the creation itself. So whether we do that through our jobs or through our families, uh, through our vacations, through our fitness, through whatever it is that we're giving ourselves to, we are seeking blessing uh, and, and, and favor through these things in the creation. And what we have here is God reminding us that there is actually a way to draw near to the living God and to find that true source of blessing through him. And, and it's an encouragement, actually, that he provides a way to do that. And he lays it out here for us. Our natural impulse is to seek his blessing. How can we have it? Well, secondly, the text also reminds you that coming into God's holy presence is costly. Uh, if you understand that you have a maker and you're drawing near to this maker, seeking his favor and blessing, the problem is that the scripture says that we are all children of wrath or in another place that we are enemies of God and that God's basic disposition towards sinful people because he is holy is one of righteous anger. And so we cannot just waltz into 
God's presence. Yes, even though most of us here are Americans, even Americans can't just waltz into God's presence because we're so great and God owes it to us or something like that. That's often how we think about it. But no, we have to come, and, and, and it's a heavy, heavy price that has to be paid to come into God's presence. God says in a number of places in his word, do not appear before me empty-handed. Uh, you, you can't just waltz here into my presence. And so this is what our text is talking about uh, in verse 3, when he brings an offering, a burnt sacrifice of the herd. Uh, something needs to be brought into the presence of God so, so that God will receive sinners. And it has to be costly. Uh, what we read about in these first few verses is a domesticated animal that's large, like a, a, a bull or an ox. Uh, if you go on in the passage, the rest of the chapter, it shows that you could also bring a goat or a sheep or you could bring even a bird so that this could be done by people in all socioeconomic classes. If you didn't have as much money, you could bring a smaller animal. But, but in every case, it was a domestic animal. You couldn't go out and shoot a deer or a wild goat and bring that. It had to be something that was domesticated, so it was valuable. And as the text tells us, it had to be one without blemish. It couldn't be one that was weak or there was something wrong with it and you were getting rid of it anyway. And it also had to be a male. Uh, you, had to, you had to take one of your breeding stock and you had to bring that costly animal, a perfectly good domestic animal to be sacrificed in this way. And, and again, it, it's sometimes hard for us to understand uh, what this means, but this is an individual acting on behalf of himself or his family, coming before God, seeking the favor and blessing of God and having to bring something of tremendous value in order to do that. Uh, now children, how many of you have ever roasted marshmallows over a fire? Oh, come on, I know you've all done this. Okay, very good, very good. So how many times have you done, been roasting your marshmallows and the, and the marshmallow falls off and goes into the fire and is completely ruined? Has that ever happened to you? Okay, good, thank you. Most of you've had that experience. Now. What's the proper response when that happens? Go, go ahead. Okay, right. It's not to cry and sob and to tear your hair. Oh, I can't believe I lost my marshmallow. Maybe if it's the last marshmallow, right? But Caleb gave the right answer. I just go get another marshmallow and I try again. It's very easy. Now, you, we might imagine what would happen if, you're, if you were camping and your father was trying to cook a steak over the fire and if the steak went in the fire and got ruined then there might be more of a response you might see some tears shed over that but what we have described here is not just a side of beef but the whole cow hundreds of pounds of animal that is burnt up and not a single bite is eaten. And meat was rare in those days, that you would eat meat on special occasions. And here they're taking a massive amount of it and they're burning it all up. And that's not the only cost in this sacrifice because in addition to the monetary cost of, of, of providing this animal, do you see how involved the worshiper himself is 
in this process. In verse 5, it says, he, that is the man who brought this animal, he shall kill the bull before the Lord. So uh, the, the worshiper has to slit the throat of the animal. And then it's, it, the, the priest and the, and the worshiper are working together. There's a collection of the blood uh, that's happening. And, and the blood is, is being uh, sprinkled around on the altar. Um, the animal is cut into pieces. The animal is washed so that nothing impure is uh, getting on the altar. And, and, uh, and basically this man is participating in, in butchering this large animal. So there is a heavy price in terms of his money, but also in terms of his effort. And, and, and just as a side, you see how worship as it's described here is a participatory event. It's not a passive event. The worshiper is not standing off watching other people do everything. The worshiper is intimately involved in the nitty gritty that's involving blood and guts and everything else as this animal is being offered. And, uh, and this is a challenge to us because it, it reminds us, first of all, that we have no right to come into God's presence in, in our sinful condition. And, and secondly, that when we come, uh, we are challenged to come in a way that says, I'm a participant here. And, and so in Hebrews 13, verse 15, it says, let us by him, that is by the Lord, continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. So in the New Testament, you're not called to bring an animal, literally, when you come into worship God, but it does say you're to bring a sacrifice. And it says that sacrifice is you are to express heartfelt worship to the Lord as a part of your service to him. And that, that's so contrary to so much of what goes on in our culture, where we come to worship as spectators and then uh, whatever's going up, up at the front, that those people do all the work and we sit back and we just watch what you do. And, uh, and that's not what worship is about. Worship is our coming, bringing an offering to the Lord. And so this text reminds you how costly it is to come into God's presence. But thirdly, the text points us to the reality that Jesus Christ paid the high price that's required to turn God's righteous anger away from you. So the real price of access to God's blessing is even higher if we think of it from the standpoint of the animal that's described here. So again, in verse five, the throat is slit, the blood is drained, uh, the, 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 the priest sprinkles the blood on the altar, and the blood represents the life of the animal. The life of the animal is given in the place of the worshiper. Uh, this is indicated, by the way, in verse four. It says, he shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering. So there's a connection, and we know from the other sacrifices, there's often uh, a confession of sin even that goes with that, that, that it's transferred onto the animal. There, there's a connection between the worshiper and the animal. And then the second part of verse four says, it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. And so here's this idea that, that, that the sacrifice is making atonement. It's covering uh, the sins of the worshiper. And that's what that word atonement means, children. It means a covering. 
in Hebrew. And it's the Greek version of that word is where we get the word propitiation. That was the big word I mentioned. It's in the title of the sermon. And what that means literally is pacifying God's anger, uh, that the animal turns God's anger away from the sinful worshiper and puts it on the animal. And it's a very important concept that God is, because he's holy, angry about sin. And that anger goes on to the animal and not on to us. And it's because of this that one of the, uh, one of the Old Testament scholars I really uh, love to read says that the book of Leviticus really should be called the book of atonement. Uh, that, that the, at the end of the day, it's not really about the priests. It's about how atonement is made and that sinful people can live with a holy God. Now, what, what's required for, for atonement to happen? Uh, children, to get this concept, you know, let's say uh, you, uh, you break one of your mom's uh, plates that she's really, it's a special plate. And so you're, you're, you were careless and, and uh, you realize that was... Um, that was the wrong thing to do. And then you, you try to turn your mother's anger uh, back so that you, you make an offering of some kind to her. You, you say, Mom, I'll pay for that, a new plate. Or you try to do something to, uh, to get back in your mom's good graces. What we're being shown here is, what does it take to get back into the good graces of a holy God if we are people who are sinful? Well, what it takes is what we just read about that the whole animal is given over to God and it's totally consumed. And the word that's used here for a burnt offering or whole burnt offering uh, in verse three is a word that in Greek is, trans is holocaust. The whole thing is, is given over, it's consumed. And so when it says in the Bible that Jesus is the propitiation, he is the atonement, this place in the Bible shows you graphically what that means. The animal's throat was slit and the animal's blood was drained and the animal's skin was taken off so that he was stripped naked in a sense. And the joints and the tendons are pulled and cut apart and the animal is sectioned and then it tells us it describes how this is put on the fire and that the priests stoke up the fire and all the parts of the animal are placed there and then the fat and, and the word there is, is is tallow it's it's what candles are made of all that is piled up on the altar and the fire roars and if you've ever grilled your hamburgers and walked away from them and come back and seen a roaring fire, you know how hot and uncomfortable a grease fire can be. Uh, when I was a kid, one of our neighbors had a grease fire in a pan, made the mistake, never do this, of putting it in the sink and running water in it, right? And that sends grease and flames going everywhere. And they had a major fire in their house because of that. And so you think about what it means to have several hundred pounds of animal meat and fat burning in an out of control fire on top of that altar. 
And as you're there as a worshiper, you can feel how hot that is. And then you realize this horrifying scene, this is a picture of God's wrath that went against Jesus Christ to pay for our sins. That sacrifice is a picture. The reality is what happened on the cross. And the part that you can't really see very well when you read the Gospels is what Jesus was experiencing when he faced the wrath of God. I put on your outline from Revelation 14, verses 10 and 11, which talks about the final judgment on uh, the enemies of God and says, he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever and they have no rest day or night. And what the Bible tells us when it says Jesus is the propitiation is that Jesus went willingly into that judgment, the fires of God's judgment, to take your sins upon himself. And and that's why we have to have an incarnation, because we have to have a savior who in his body took our sins. Jesus paid the high price and turned God's anger away from you. But fourthly, we see here that Jesus' radical sacrifice gives you access then to God's favor and blessing. So this pictures for us the averting of God's wrath. But there's three times in this chapter where it talks about what happens here as a sweet aroma to the Lord. That was at the very end of verse 9. And some other translations call it a soothing aroma or a pleasing aroma. And we can debate how pleasing it is when a giant pile of meat is getting burnt, whether that's pleasing. But the the idea here, it sounds almost like God's eating the sacrifice. The sacrifice is getting turned into smoke. The smoke is going up and the Lord is taking it. Is God actually eating the sacrifice? Well, he tells us. uh, Psalm 50 is one of the places he tells us, "I, I don't need your animals. I don't eat your animals. What I want is a contrite heart. And and the point here is when it says it goes up as a pleasing aroma is the idea that God has accepted the sacrifice. And because God has accepted the sacrifice, he's accepted the worshiper. So again, back in verse four, he shall put his hand on the bird offering. It will be accepted on his behalf. So uh, this idea that the smoke is going up and probably the priest is pronouncing a blessing on the worshiper, that this is evidence that God has received this sacrifice that your burden is paid and that God is now graciously oriented toward you. And this is exactly what happened in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ because he went to the cross in place of his people and he went to the grave, but he didn't stay in the grave. He came back alive. And this is the evidence that God had received his sacrifice and that Jesus, uh, risen in glory, had gotten us favor with the Lord. So Paul writes in Ephesians 5, Therefore be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice for a sweet-smelling aroma. That very same phrase, that Jesus is that sweet-smelling aroma, that he is the one who makes you acceptable 
before God. And we know from the book of Hebrews that it wasn't the blood of the bulls and the goats. That wasn't what uh, actually saved the people. It was only pointing them to the reality of the work of Christ that actually takes away our sins. But I believe that the Old Testament worshipers understood what they were doing. They understood as they were there. That should be me getting my throat slit. That should be me in that fire. And instead, there's a substitute in there. And that substitute is the one that's giving me access to my creator and giving me his blessing. And so isn't this fascinating? Because so often today, evangelicals talk about whether we have accepted Jesus or not, whether Jesus is acceptable to us. And what this is showing us that the burden really is, has God accepted us or not? Not whether we've accepted him. And and this is saying that we come with this costly substitute and God accepts the substitute in our place and therefore he accepts us. And God is now favorably disposed. He is pleased with his people. It is a fragrant aroma to him and he looks on his people with pleasure and and that's your hope really it's not in yourself it's not in your circumstances it's looking at the cross again and again and seeing how much God loves me that God is pleased with me because of Jesus and what Jesus has done So then the passage calls you to live for and worship God, leaning on your Savior. If you go back to verse 4 again, he shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering. And that word that's translated, you know, put his hand, lay his hand, is translated in other places, lean. In fact, that's the word when it talks about Samson leaning on the pillars uh, when he eventually pushes in the building. We just studied that. That's the same word. So it has the idea of putting significant pressure on it. I put another example from Isaiah 36 in your outline where there the people are criticized for trusting in the staff of this broken reed Egypt on which if a man leans that same word, it will go into his hand and pierce it. You have to lean pretty hard on a reed to get it to pierce your hand. And so this is a way to talk about our trust and our faith. We come and we put our hand on the sacrifice, we are leaning on the sacrifice, we are trusting on the sacrifice that God's going to receive the sacrifice and, and in our place and be favorably inclined toward us. And this is of course what you must do through the Lord Jesus Christ. You must lean on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you must tell yourself again and again that God receives me favorably because of the Lord Jesus Christ his son. And, uh, and this then becomes the basis for how you are to live. It's not an accident then that Romans 12 verse 1 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Do you see what it's saying there? It's saying because Jesus has gone into the fire for you, because Jesus has been sacrificed in your place, 
you are able to be received by God and now to serve God as a living sacrifice, not as a dead sacrifice, but as a living sacrifice, giving over, given over to serving the Lord out of gratitude. J.I. Packer in Knowing God says this, in paganism, man propitiates his gods and religion becomes a form of commercialism and indeed of bribery. But in Christianity, however, God propitiates his wrath by his own action. He sets forth Jesus Christ to be the propitiation of our sins. And that's the glory of the gospel. You and I cannot do it, but Jesus did it in our place. And because Jesus did it, you and I can be forgiven. You can get up every morning knowing that God is favorably inclined toward you because of Jesus. You can worship him in private and in public because he has accepted the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So why did Jesus come to be born in a manger? Not principally so we can sing about a little baby and focus our attention there, but so that he could be a human being like you, but without sin. And therefore he could be that propitiation, that sacrifice that takes away our sins and that enables us to have the blessing and favor of a holy God. The devil loves to make us doubt who we are and loves to make us question our standing with him. Uh, but don't let him do that. Look at this passage and see what your savior has done for you. He was the sacrifice and he went through the fires so that you could receive God's blessing and favor. And by his grace, may we live for him and may we worship him. Let's pray and give him thanks. Heavenly Father, we rejoice in your goodness to us. This is a part of scripture that we don't often dwell on because it's, it's graphic, it's violent. And yet, Lord, when we understand that this is perhaps the most clear picture of what atonement means and that none of us can be saved unless there is this atonement, uh, we realize this is a profound and important passage for us. And that this shows us all that our Lord Jesus was going to suffer and endure on our behalf. And we thank you, Lord, that his sacrifice was pleasing in your sight and that you received it. And because of that, you receive all those who are in Christ Jesus. How we thank you, Lord, that we can be recipients of your grace and your favor and your blessing because of what Jesus has done. We pray you would help us to see our identity in Christ and that by your grace, we would learn to live more and more as those dedicated as living offerings to serving the Lord and as those seeking to worship you through our great savior. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. And let's sing our praise now back to the Lord from Psalm 149, selection B. Now, this is the Psalm of the month for the month of December. I'll just have you notice here that Again, the psalm mentions that God takes delight in his people, that we are able to delight in him because he takes delight in us. And he does that through our Lord Jesus Christ, the propitiation for our sins. Let's stand and we'll sing our praise to him. <laughs> 